All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 39 through 40. I'm entitling this message, You Ain't No Cinderella. Cinderella, you heard me right. You got a problem with that title, dude? <laughs> you ain't no Cinderella. Hopefully that will become clear why I'm entitling this in a little bit. And let me just kind of explain what we're doing here. Uh, this is the way we sort of preach here at Woodland Hills Church, at least in this season. We're going through the book of Luke, verse by verse. Uh, there's two aspects of interpreting the Bible. One is, what did the original mean? What, what, what was Luke saying? That's called exegesis. And to see if that's all we were doing is, is trying to get at what Luke was saying, I think we'd be a little farther along than we are right now. But there's a second thing that we, we, we want to get involved in, and that is not only what is Luke saying to his original audience, but what is God saying to us through Luke? Right? And that's hermeneutics. That's application. And that, that's what we're doing here within the church. We go verse by verse, but depending on how we feel God leading, and we've got a team of people around this to kind of sense what, what we feel God's saying, we'll hover on a, a set of passages and launch off into sort of a theme based on that passage. Uh, so we're doing both. What is Luke saying, and then what is God saying to us through Luke? Um, and that's why we take our time. After six months, we're up to chapter 2, verse 39. Uh, and what we're doing now is we're hovering on this passage, which really strongly emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, and we're using it as an opportunity to talk about the incarnation. The word incarnation simply is the theological term uh, that means God becoming a human being. It comes from the Latin encarne, carne meaning flesh and yada, yada, yada. So incarnation means God becomes a human being, so that's what we're talking about here, and this is the second of what will probably be like a three-part series on the incarnation. Luke chapter 2, verse 39 through 40 says this. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law in terms of dedicating their child to God, uh, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, or in the Greek, the participle can be translated, he was being filled with wisdom. Most translations have him say something like, uh, uh, he was increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Let's pray about this. Uh, a couple of people around the auditorium will cover me in prayer. Raise your hands if you'll keep me covered in prayer as this message goes forward. I need a couple more. And those of you who were at the seminar yesterday, you already know that this is your job. So you keep me, we had a seminar in prayer and covering the service in prayer, so we're going to have everything saturated in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Father, let this word come alive right here and right now. Lord God, let it be impacting. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God that passes all knowledge. Help us to see God and to comprehend what is incomprehensible and invisible. That outlandish, crazy, powerful, transforming love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Let it be done in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. We're talking about the real humanity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a pretend human, he was a real human. And this passage highlights that by telling us that Jesus grew in wisdom. He learned the way human beings learn because he was a real human being. A number of other passages say the same thing. Hebrews chapter 5 says that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Hebrews chapter 2 says he was made like us, like us other human beings, in every respect. Hebrews chapter 4 says he was tempted in every way, just as we are. He was a full human being. That's why Jesus had to pray, because human beings need to pray. Human beings need to talk to, to God, and so Jesus prayed. 
Jesus at times acknowledged there were things he didn't know. He says, no one knows the day or the hour of the, the coming of the Son of Man. That's given uh, to the Father. Uh, and, and so what it tells us is that God took so seriously this thing about becoming a human being that he laid aside, as Philippians 2 tells us, he laid aside his divine prerogatives, the, the divine attributes, the exercise of the divine attributes that would be inconsistent with his becoming a full human being. So he sets aside his all-knowingness and sets aside his all-powerfulness and sets aside his omnipresence, which means he's everywhere, in order to become a full human being. Jesus was a real human being. Now, he was also, we saw last week, fully God. He's fully God and fully human. The character of God and the essence of God coming down Becoming a full human being. And we talked a little bit last week about why he did this. Now I want to talk about another angle on why God would go to this extreme, extreme measure on our behalf. Why, why God became a human being, a full human being. In fact, the scripture indicates that, he, that this is a permanent thing that God did. When you go into the eschaton and the end times, God still's got this body. God permanently took on a human body. Why would God permanently alter himself for us? We talked about empathy last week. I'm going to get at a different angle this week. And to do that, I want to tell you a story about Cinderella. In this version of the story we're going to see here, uh, Cinderella, whose name is Daniel. Uh, this is from the movie Ever After or Everlasting or Ever Something, I forget. Uh, but uh, uh, she, uh, of course, is her, 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 her mother died. Her father remarried this wicked stepmother. Uh, then her father died, so the wicked stepmother raises her, but the wicked stepmother doesn't love her the same way she loves her own two children, so she's basically a household slave. The prince falls in love with her. They're almost ready to, you know, fall, be married and everything else. And then wicked stepmother comes and breaks it up. And now this scene, it comes right after this. The, it's the morning after the ball where uh, Cinderella had to run out and lost her golden glass slipper. Let's watch it. Glass, gold, something. I have it on good authority that before your rather embarrassing debut, the prince was about to choose Marguerite to be his bride. Men are so fickle, aren't they? One minute they're spouting sonnets, and the next you're back to being the hired help. Although I must say, I've never seen you quite this dedicated in your chores. What makes you think I do any of this for you? Well, my, 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 aren't we feisty this morning? Let me pass. You've brought this on yourself, you know. I have work to do. Let the others handle it. Don't you understand? You've won! Go, move into your palace and leave us be! You are not my problem anymore. Is that what I am? Your problem? I have done everything you've ever asked me to do and still you've denied me the only thing I ever wanted. What was that? What do you think? You are the only mother I have ever known. Was there a time, even in its smallest measurement, that you loved me at all? How can anyone love a pebble in their shoe? Oh, 
sad. How can anyone love a pebble in their shoe? Is that what I am to you a problem? Is that what I am to you a problem? It's what we can call this morning the Cinderella syndrome. The Cinderella syndrome. The question is, am I just a problem for you? Do you have to just put up with me? There's a lot of different versions of the Cinderella syndrome and a lot of different levels of intensity with the Cinderella syndrome. But in their nutshell, they all have this in common. Do you love me for me or do you love me if you love me at all for some other reasons? Because you have to. Stepkids can have this syndrome when you have a step parent who you think loves their own biological kids more than you. It's like, do you love me for me or was I just part of the package deal? You chose my father, but you didn't really choose me. So I'm wondering, am I just something you got to put up with because of who you do love? Am I, do you choose me or am I just sort of the addendum to who you do choose? Cinderella syndrome comes in a lot of different forms. Do you ever, in dating somebody, maybe you're falling in love with them, but it occurs to you at some point that the only reason they're interested in you is because the one they're really interested in isn't interested in them? Ouch. It's like you were a second best or third best. The question is, is, would you choose me? If you can choose anybody, would you choose me? Am I anybody's number one? Uh, couples sometimes get into this. After 15, 20 30 years of marriage, or it could have been two weeks for all I know. Uh, but the question that the wife might ask the husband or the husband asked the wife would be something like this. After all this time and all the water that's passed under the bridge and all the ups and downs that we've had, do you still choose me? If you had to do it all, all over again, would you choose me? Today, if we weren't married, would I catch your eye and would you choose to marry me? very important question, and how you answer it is very important. Be very careful. It's a Cinderella syndrome. Am I a number one choice? Am I anyone's number one choice? Well, see, sometimes the way the gospel story is told, it could encourage a sort of Cinderella syndrome. Um, Are we God's first choice, or is this something, are we just a problem that he has to solve? When God became a human being, He went to this extreme measure to put on humanity, Uh, permanently alter himself. Did he do that out of his first choice, or was was, was his hand kind of forced by circumstances? You know, the way the story often goes, and this is largely true, I I just don't think it's the whole truth, but it goes like this. You know, God created us and wants fellowship with us, and then we blew it, we fell into sin and bondage to the devil, so God raises up Israel, spends thousands of years cultivating Israel, but that didn't work because the Israelites were too stubborn and humanity was too fallen. So then, as a last-ditch effort, a plan B, it's like, now we got to go in there and rescue them. Uh, you know, they're so far gone, i got to permanently alter myself. And oh, You almost get the impression of Jesus up there saying, shucks, now i got to go suffer. You know, we were hoping the Israel deal would work, and it didn't, so now i got to take on humanity, permanently alter myself. Look what you have done. <laughs> it reminds me of a time when I was a kid at St. Patrick's School in Ohio, Debbie, and uh, the, uh, the priest, you know, every morning we had to go to Mass, and it was in Latin, and for hyperactive kids, every morning Mass in Latin just does not work, so I'm screwing up. And one day I was screwing up so bad in the middle of Mass, while the priest was giving communion, he had to stop and point his finger at me. Like this. And I knew I was a dead man. I was dead. And the nun came over and grabbed my ear and brought me out of the cathedral. 
And look what you have done. Look what you have done. You caused Father, whatever his name was, Father, to actually stop the Mass. It's like, this is the unforgivable sin. This isn't venial sin. This is mortal sin we're talking about. Mr. Boy, you are going to hell. She didn't say that, but it was, it was getting pretty bad. Look what you have done. It, it, to this extreme, you, you, you interrupted the Mass. It's almost like, look what you have done. What a problem you are. God had to permanently alter himself for you. Oh, my golly. I want to give a little different perspective. God did clearly alter himself for us in response to our fallen sin. But I think there's another dimension to this that's often overlooked, at least in the Western church. Uh, Let's look at the book of Ephesians. And I find this just to be so beautiful and so profound. The book of Ephesians, the, the, the first chapter of Ephesians is just absolutely out of the park gorgeous. But listen to this now. And put your thinking caps on. This is going to be a little bit theological, but we're not afraid of theology. Anyone here afraid of theology? Good. I didn't think so. You probably wouldn't be going here if you're afraid of theology. Here's, here's some good theology here. Ready? Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every... Everybody say every. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, that's an important concept. In Christ, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. There isn't one spiritual blessing we haven't received. Did you know that? Wow. Okay. For he chose us in him. Okay. I centered in Christ again. Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight or could be in his presence. Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. There's that in Christ thing again. In accordance with his good pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. There's one he loves, it's Jesus Christ, and now we are in Jesus Christ, so all that applies to Jesus Christ now applies to us. Five points that come from this, uh, from these four verses. First of all, it says, verse 3, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, we're chosen in him to be holy and blameless in Christ. Verse 5, in love we're predestined for adoption to sonship in Christ. Verse 6, we're freely given him, given grace in him, the one he loves. We're given grace in Christ. And the fifth point is this. All of this, notice this, all of this was decided before the creation of the world. It wasn't an auxiliary plan, a plan B, an addendum, an afterthought, an emergency measure. This was the plan all along. I want to make two fundamental teaching points from these, uh, these verses. Point number one, notice, please notice, that the passage doesn't say that God chose us in contrast to others. There's no contrast here. Some people, in fact, a lot of people read this passage and they think that God was up there going, any, meeny, miny, mo, you're in Christ and you I let go. And, and that God, he come up with this terrifying thought that God, from before the creation of the world, predestined some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. It's a very frightening thought. That's not what the passage is saying. If that is what the passage is saying, the Bible would just be contradicting itself because the Bible makes it very, very clear that God wants everyone saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, for example. God's not willing that anyone should perish, but wants everyone to come to repentance. Anyone, anyone should, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone, those are all-inclusive terms, to come to everlasting life. So, uh, 2 Timothy tells us this. God wants all people, everyone say all people. All people, that includes you, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the, uh, of the truth. So God's heart is for everybody. 
If you're, if you're breathing, God wants you saved. If you've got brain cells, and even if you don't have brain cells, God wants you saved. He wants everybody to come into Christ. But the passage, the passage is not saying that God chose some to be in Christ and some not. What the passage is saying is that God chose whoever is in Christ to be holy and blameless. God chose, he predestined, that whoever is in Christ will be his child, adopted as a child. God chose, he predestined, that whoever is in Christ will be blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now God wants, has always wanted, will always want all to be in Christ. And God tries to get everyone in Christ. The Spirit of God is working at every moment in everyone's life throughout the world to bring them insofar as it's possible, given their situation, into a relationship with Christ. God wants everyone to be in Christ. And whatever, whoever is in Christ, what's predestined for Christ, is, is predestined for them. We are now in Christ. If you have surrendered, genuinely surrendered your life to Christ, if you've yielded to the pull of the Spirit in your life, you are now in Christ. So everything that was predestined for Christ now applies to you. So now we can say, if you're a kingdom person, you can say, it is, God chose us before the foundation of the world, not to be in Christ or not to be in Christ, but rather to be holy and blameless in Christ. That's what the passage says. And God chose us. He predestined us to be adopted as children in Jesus Christ and to be loved in Jesus Christ and to lavish his grace on us in Jesus Christ. Everything that was predestined for Jesus Christ now applies to you since you are here. Now, of course, you didn't have to be here. You could have, have resisted God, but now that you're here, it all applies to you. It'd be kind of like this. Let's suppose that Bill over here says, Greg, uh, when, did, when was it decided, when did Norm decide that uh, we were going to uh, sing the song, I am a friend of God? And I would say, well, Norm decided that before, uh, before yesterday. He decided it, it was predestined since Wednesday. On Wednesday, he predestined that we would sing, uh, I am a friend of God. And now that we're all here, we all say, oh, yes, it was chosen for us that we would sing, I'm a friend of God. But on Wednesday, neither Norm nor anyone else chose that you particularly were going to sing, I'm a friend of God. What we predestined is that anybody who shows up, and of course, we would like everyone to show up, but those who do show up, what was predestined is that if you show up, then you will sing, I'm a friend of God. Uh, but wasn't we didn't say that you as opposed to somebody else would sing this song. We just said whoever shows up will sing this song. So also God from the foundation of the world, this was the plan all along. He, he, he made this resolve, this plan, that whoever is in Christ, as Christ becomes a human being, and all this is spoken about the incarnate Christ. In the, the incarnate Christ, whoever's in the incarnate Christ, uh, the, 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 the enfleshed Christ, they will be adopted as children. They will be lavished with love. They will be blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. They will sit with Christ in heavenly places. God will live in them and they will live in God and so on and so on and so on. You could have said no and then none of it would apply to you. You said yes and so all of it applies to you. Second thing I want us to see about this passage. Notice that the plan for Christ to become a human being and for us to be adopted in this human being was decided, Paul says, from before the creation of the world. From the start, God had this plan. Before there ever was a world, here's what God said was going to do. I'm going to become one of them, and they're going to be now invited in Christ into me. I will adopt them as my children. I will embrace them as my own children. I will share with them my holy and blameless nature. I will share with them every blessing that I am. Uh, th th this was there from the start. In fact, this was the purpose of creation. That's why you read verses like this in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 1, that all things were created through him and all things were created for him. 
The purpose of creation is Christ. And to say that the purpose of creation is Christ means the purpose of creation is for God to adopt children in Christ. The picture I get is this. Illustration A. This is always dangerous. I'm such a bad drawer, but I think in pictures I can't always. Here's God. Forgive me, God. Um, and uh, he's Trinity. And before, they're going along, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect, unsurpassable love, bliss, splendor, joy, peace. God enjoys being God. He's the epitome of all that is good, wonderful, and true. So there's a dance throughout eternity. Can you see that? Well, it's kind of a glare there. Oh, there. Ooh. All right, there you go. Nice. Okay, now. God, he, it's like, it's like a, a married couple that just wants to share their love with a child. God erupts, uh, overflows, as it were, with love and comes up with a plan. And the plan is this. We're going to create a world, uh, beings other than ourselves, and invite them in on us. And so, so it's like this. Here, here's Jesus. And the decision is for Jesus. This is the plan. Jesus will become, from the foundation of the world, Jesus will become one of them and then invite them into him sort of absorbing them within himself. Is that making any sense? Absorbing them within himself. Okay, the picture I get is like a bear hug. Uh, Jesus is going to come down. He's going to put his arms around humanity and just squish us into him. We are in Christ. It's not a poem. That's, that, that's, that's reality. We're talking metaphysics. We're talking ontology here. Our state of being has changed. He embraces us and packs us into himself like a bear hug. Do you ever just love someone you just want to say, oh, I just want to squish you? Well, that's what God did with you. I want to squish you. And he does it. We're, we're squishing in Christ. And then Christ transports us back into like the Godhead, as it were, to dance in the triune God. Um, that's why the Bible says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we are made participants in the divine nature. We're given a new location. It's like getting in a rocket ship, and the rocket ship takes you into the dance. <laughs> you can quote me on that one, too. Getting in a rocket ship, and the rocket ship takes you into the dance. Uh, we're made participants in the divine nature. My point here was this. Uh, God becoming a human being wasn't an auxiliary, secondary, afterthought kind of thing. I could put it this way. For, w w the idea of God becoming a human being and then embracing us and absorbing us within himself. This wasn't a have-to kind of a love. It was a get-to kind of a love. Do you have to love me or are you just happy because you get to love me? God's kind of love is a get-to kind of a love. It's not a have-to kind of a love. No one forced God's hand. It wasn't because of the, the circumstances of how screwed up we got that he decided to do this radical alteration. This radical thing was, was the point of all of creation. It was a get-to kind of a thing. The closest analogy we have probably in human life is the consummation of a, of a marriage. When I, when, when I, now it would be odd, wouldn't it? Uh, I suppose it happens once in a while, but it would be odd if the couple, uh, uh, you know, as they're getting married, say, oh, tonight we get to, or we have to consummate our marriage. We have to. Uh, you, consummating a marriage with this oneness, with the two become one, that's the analogy I'm using here. The, consummating a marriage usually isn't something someone says, I have to. It's rather, I get to. This is a good thing. Right? It's supposed to be a good thing. Right? I, I, we get to join together. Well, God's Love for us was a, was a get-to. That's why the Bible says that, that Jesus Christ considered it joy. It was joy that was set before him. God wants to unite. God, God's not a stingy God who, who you know, kind of holds out his love and blessings as a carrot on a stick and you got to grovel for. God is this lavish, splendorous being who loves to overflow, who loves to pour himself out, who loves to dive into our humanity. He wanted to, from the start, wanted to unite himself with us. 
so that we might participate eternally in the dance of the triune God. Now, listen to this. What wasn't part of the plan all along, though God was certainly aware of this, uh, but, but was that we would fall and rebel and that this would involve suffering. The cross wasn't something that was built into the original plan from the start. The, con- the possibility of that, of course, was there. But the cross, the idea that, that Jesus would suffer, that is a means to this end. Because we're fallen, think of it like this. Because we're fallen, when God becomes one of us and puts his arms around us to embrace us into himself, because we're under bondage to the devil, that issue has to be taken care of before we can be incorporated into Christ. And because we're in bondage to sin, that issue has to be taken care of uh, to be incorporated into Christ. But the plan all along, the fact that we were going to be incorporated into Christ, that was the plan all along. As I, as I think of it this way, and you, know, you might have a different way of thinking about it, but is that God was going to court us, as it were, like, like a marriage couple would. You court, prepare the way, and at the right time, Paul uses that expression, at the right time, God would become one of us in order to embrace us into himself. Now let me apply that to our lives. It means this. It means you ain't no Cinderella. This isn't a Cinderella gig. You weren't a, a have-to kind of a love for God. You were, you were a get-to kind of a love for God. Uh, you weren't an afterthought. You weren't the contingency plan. You weren't just so bad that now God has to make this major alteration in your life. This was God's first choice. It, it, it gave him, the passage says, it was his good pleasure and will to unite himself to humanity that you might be united to him. You weren't an afterthought on the part of God. You weren't a second choice on the part of God. You're not a Cinderella problem that God's trying to solve. You are his first love. You are the apple of his eye. He finds delight in you. His first choice was to dive into your humanity in order to bring your humanity into the triune dance, that he could have marital union kind of intimacy with you. That was the plan all along. You're not God's second choice. You're God's first choice. You ain't no Cinderella. You're the apple of his eye. It may be that you've never been anyone's first choice. Is there anyone in your life that has ever said, I choose you first? Maybe not. That's how it goes in this fallen world. It may be that your parents and your stepmother or grandmother or anyone, whoever, didn't choose you first. It may be that you've all grown up with the idea that you're just part of the package deal. You're just what people put up with. You're there waiting in the wings when the first and second choice uh, don't fall through. You're the, you're the reserves. Maybe it's part of your identity. You've never been chosen just because you're you. But I'm telling you, God from the foundation of the world chooses you just because you're you. The plan was for him to unite with you all along. You are his first choice. Second thing I want you to notice is this. What was the second thing? Oh, yes. You might be having this mindset, because a lot of people do. Talked to a guy last night who had this mindset. Well, look at okay, that's wonderful. But then God, you know, from the foundation of the world, he chose everybody. Uh, and so I'm really nothing special. I don't feel special. It's like, I'm just, I'm still one of the crowd. Oh, I'm really glad he became a human being in order to unite my human person into his, you know, triune God. That's wonderful. But I, I, there's nothing individual about it now, is there? Because he did that for everybody. So I'm just kind of part of the crowd. Now, I want you to think about this. Keep your theology caps on. We got to think about the infinitude of God more deeply than we are inclined to do. You and I have a limited capacity to love because we have a limited capacity of time and a limited capacity of mind power and a limited capacity of emotional strength, whatever. Usually we can only give ourselves wholly and completely to one person or maybe in different ways to a couple people, but it's limited. We love everybody, but we can't love everybody with the same complete abandoned intensity. 
That's why the marriage relationship is supposed to be so special. This person gets your all. But now, God isn't like us in terms of being finite. God has an unlimited capacity to love. Which means this. God can love each and every one of a trillion people as though each and every one was the only person. How did I say it, Dan, on the overhead? For God, there's no difference between God loving a gazillion people and God loving one single person. You can't fraction up infinity. God doesn't need to spread his, his love thin to cover a multitude. Rather, because it's unlimited, God can love each and every one of any size of a multitude as though each and every one was the only one. Which means this. It is appropriate and even necessary for you to at times understand and experience your relationship with God as though you and God were the only ones who existed. God's attention and love and passion for you is as intense and unsurpassable as it would be if you were the only human being that was ever made. Everything God did, in that sense, he did specifically for you. Specifically for you. He loved, can, can, you, can you receive that? Can you just receive that? He loves you that much. You're, in, in one sense, the purpose of creation. God created the world because he wants to be united with you. One with you. You were his first choice. The fact that there's others doesn't diminish this truth at all. He has you in mind. You individually are the apple of his eye. You individually are the, are the radiant bride of Christ. You ravish the heart of God. Can you, can you, in times of prayer, even right now, hear God say that to you, looking straight at you. You are the one that is the apple of my eye. I give my all to you. I permanently altered myself for you. See, only that level of profound intimacy has the power to get into every nook and cranny of our being and radically revolutionize uh, our, 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 our self-identity and transform our being and free us from all the lies that we're told about our worth and value uh, in the culture. The relationship, is, it, this is personal, you and him. The final thing I want to say as I ask the worship team to come back up here again is this. I want you to notice one other thing about this beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says that all of this was not only from before the creation of the world. He says it was all according to God's good pleasure and will. Did you notice that? It was according to God's good pleasure and will. Which means it wasn't according to anything else. It was according to God's good pleasure and will. God's desire to unite himself, become one of us in order to bear hug us into him that we might dance with him. God's desire to adopt us as children. God's desire to bless us with every spiritual blessing. God's desire to lavish on us his love and grace. God's desire to love us the way he loves Jesus Christ. All of that was based on one thing. And it wasn't that you're so good looking. And it wasn't that you're so nice and religious. It wasn't that you're less of a sinner than other people. It wasn't that you hold all the right beliefs and none of the wrong beliefs. And it wasn't that you do all the right behaviors and none of the wrong behaviors, or at least not as many bad behaviors as other people. It was due to none of that. It wasn't because you're not a murderer and not an adulterer and, and not a drug addict or whatever. You may be all those things. The reason why God united himself to humanity in order to incorporate you into him is because he likes to. It's based on him, not on you. Your merits, your worthiness is not at all a relevant consideration. 
What is the consideration is this. God is a God of outlandish beauty, outlandish grace, magnificent, extravagant love. And he puts his extravagant love on display by putting his arms around you and squishing him, you into himself. And once I see, here's the paradox. You see, it's for the creation of the world. You're the point of everything. And on the other hand, you've got nothing to do with it. I love it, I love it. It's true. It's true. You're the point. But it's about him and it's not about you. You enter into this mindset and it will change everything.